Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me as always is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. There's really nothing witty to say for this episode that I could think no. of, so just hi. I wasn't going to try. <laughs> I'm just saying, let's keep it straight this week, because this movie is definitely not something you want to be ha-ha oh, yeah. funny. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Unless you're psychotic, in which case we might be. But anyway, this week we are covering the Carrie Mulligan-led film Promising Young Woman, brought to us by another female actress turned first-time director, Emerald Fennell. Or fennel? Is it fennel or fennel? I didn't. I I actually don't know, but fennel isn't fennel like a little seed or some sort of? Yeah, it's kind of kernel or something. I don't know. But the double L I think makes me going to go fennel. Yeah, that's true. In any case, in any case, we'll just call her Emerald because we can be on first name basis on a podcast where she's not going to be on, so it's all good. Anyway, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this one, Aaron, I believe you have a couple of quick announcements for us. I do. First and foremost, we want to send a shout out to Nerdtrovert uh, from Twitter. He is very interactive with us on Twitter. Love getting a chance to chat all the time. Um, longtime listener and new patron. And so we just wanted to say thank you for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it and wanted to make sure that you knew that it means the world to us. Um, you can always support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash film get access to some cool bonus perks like Nerdtrovert, and of course, come interact with us on Twitter and Facebook and wherever else you would like, because that's fun too. Facebook group especially. All right, the other announcement, Patrick, is this. If you are a regular listener, you might recall back in October of 2020 when we had a special episode where we got together and we drafted movies from 1999 in a competition format. We actually streamed that episode live to our Facebook group, and interacted with the viewers during the event. Later, the Facebook group voted on who drafted the best lineup. We play the game by taking turns, picking movies, and then we slot them into specific categories like drama or blockbuster or horror or comedy, etc. It's a ton of fun. Our plan is to do one of these quarterly, and the next round is going to be happening on Saturday, February the 20th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Saturday, February 20th, 6 p.m. Pacific. To participate, you just can come join the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group, and that is at facebook.com slash groups slash Film. Competitors this time around are going to be myself, Coles, Don Shanahan from Every Movie Has a Lesson, and standing in for Patrick this round will be Emmanuel Noisette from Eman's Movie Reviews. So hopefully he does you a solid and represents well, Patrick. I have a feeling he's going to come prepared. E-Man does not ever slack off. So I got my faith. I got my faith in E-Man. He's as gonna, as gonna, you should. He's yeah. represent. So that's two from <laughs> Seattle versus two from Chicago. Rain versus wind. So come on with us and enjoy this game and help us determine who wins after the fact. Fantastic, Aaron. Uh, yeah. Join the Facebook group if you haven't already and be prepared for an onslaught of movie fun. <laughs> The last episode was pretty great, and I'm sure this one will be uh, just as much. All right. Well, we always start 
our discussion with one word takeaways, our spoiler free portion of our podcast. And Aaron, why don't you start us off with the word that you could use to sum up your experience with this movie? Sure. I'm going to, I have a lot of words, but I'm going to go with expose. It was extremely unique how Carrie Mulligan's character arc in this movie isn't rooted in her own experience as a sexual abuse victim. And instead it's about her pushing for retribution and responsibility to be taken for her friend who did experience that. And I absolutely love that angle because I think that it gives the story a weight that we haven't been able to experience before. It's about someone who's trying to expose this secret toxic nice guy of the world and how prevalent they can be and how dangerous they can be and how unpunished they can go. And it's not always the Weinsteins and the rich and the famous and the powerful. And this is more about exposing the everyday people in your life that can commit these acts. And so it makes you seriously think about how many of these people are out there, these Al's, these Joe's, or even these Ryan's who are going about their successful careers and their lives, who have done something to hurt someone and it's not even registering in their memory at this point because it meant so little to them. But that person, that victim is carrying depression or carrying trauma or God forbid has killed themselves unbeknownst to these people. And I think it should make you think twice if you're a dude about the conversations that we've all been a part of at one point in our life or overheard one or the other, at least when men talk about women in a certain way, devaluing them into an object of desire, because that's how it starts. And it's on a putting people on a path sometimes that can lead to sexual harassment, abuse, and even worse. And so I like how this movie exposes that and shines a light on it in a way that I've never really seen done before. It's great. And a great description using that word. I think for me, manipulative is the word that came to mind really both times that I've watched this for uh, FF plus and then for the show and for different reasons. I think the first time I watched this, I was manipulated into thinking it was something that it became something different and that's not bad. So there was a very great surprising feeling I got and I did feel a little manipulated in that I saw something in the trailers and then I got something else. And then even as the movie goes on from the opening scene, you're like, Oh, this is going to be this. And then it turns into something else for a minute and then it goes back to this. And so it's a back and forth type of thing. But as an audience and watching this specifically the second time around, I think there is a lot of manipulation that goes on obviously with our main character with the cast of people. And to, to your point, Aaron, sometimes it's manipulation of the mind where there's a forgetfulness that a person has because of past events. They don't recall something. And as we'll get into the discussion, we'll see how that can be both detrimental and make that person both a victim and a predator almost at the same time. So watching this, 
you can see how Fennell has essentially taken this story that is blown up in a Weinstein type of narrative that we're familiar with and has put it down on the ground and has allowed us as an audience to kind of experience what it might be like in the mind of a woman who is a victim but doesn't want to act like a victim. And in this case, not the victim, but maybe the victim's avenging angel or avenging devil, depending on how you want to look at Carrie Mulligan's performance. But overall, I think the manipulation that takes place within the story and to the audience plays into this idea that we have to be careful. We have to be very observant about the things around us, the things that we're saying, the things that we're doing, and the things that other people are saying and doing. Because there's a culpability that in a commonplace sense, we don't seem to want to take ownership of. In other words, we're not the people in the bar necessarily that are doing what's being done in these scenes. But if I glance and see something like that happening, what's my role in that? Do I become culpable because I didn't do something or because I did? And this movie really kind of exposes that, to use your word, in that where does my responsibility stop and where does it start? And the answer isn't always clear, which I think creates great discussion specifically for men to talk about. And that's one thing that I thought was interesting. You know, here's two guys talking about a movie that centers around female victimization. And I almost, there's a small part of me that's like, wait, are we really qualified to talk about this? And then in my research in listening to a couple of interviews, that's exactly who the audience is for. It's for men to talk about these things because this is not the story we get a lot. So yeah, I love the manipulative nature of the story and how it kind of forces me as a guy to look through that lens and question some things. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. And so I was, I'm glad you said what you just said, because it, it is important. And I think that what we don't ever want to do is isolate who can and can't talk about a movie ever in film criticism. I think that it actually can be too prevalent out there for people calling on, oh, no, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this because you're not a woman or you're not black or you're not LGBTQ or whatever the case may be. And that's bogus, frankly. Now, what's important and what matters is that we acknowledge the perspective we're coming from and we do our due diligence to think through things. And we come to the table open and ready to learn as much as to preach. We're not here to preach. We're not here to, you know, say that we know best what an experience is. We're just going to re relate to it in our own ways. And that's always going to have value no matter where you're coming from. So I think that, that it's good that that's the point of this one is like it's yes, it is there. And women, many women that I know absolutely love this movie um, because of how well it captures feelings and experiences that they've had and things that they wish that they could get across to a certain type of man. And their hope is that men will see this and men will stop 
doing these things. Like that's that's what this is all about, right? That's ultimately yes, this is entertainment, but ultimately, like the goal would be we don't want the situation that we see in Promising Young Woman to ever occur. <laughs> like we don't want there to ever be abuse to where someone feels the need to get revenge or retribution for that. And so we don't want lives to be ruined. And you don't have you can be a man or a woman and totally agree with that and find value in that story that is aiming for that goal. Exactly. Well, at this point, we are going all spoilery. So this is your warning. If you get the chance, watch the movie, come back and join the conversation with us. Agree with us. Disagree with us. Give us some shouts in the Facebook group with your opinions. But in any case, this is where we talk about the meat and potatoes. So you have been warned. I want to start by talking about Carrie Mulligan's performance because she's in every scene. I don't think there's a scene where she isn't part of it, which I think is fantastic. I mean, any movie where you are essentially carrying it as an actor is pretty fantastic. And her range is just wild. It's just phenomenal. And it's also been compared to Joaquin Phoenix's performance as the Joker. In what ways, Aaron, do you see that as accurate? Or do you see that? Is that an unfair comparison? Or is it maybe a hot take? Or are there things about her performance that kind of lend themselves to being alongside Joaquin Phoenix and his portrayal of Joker? Part of me wonders if the people saying that have just seen the trailer where she's putting on makeup right before she goes into the bachelor party and they're just basing it all entirely on that and the scenes of her putting lipstick on the mirror. Uh, because yeah, I can see some like visual similarities to some of the shots we get of the Joker looking at himself. I really don't see almost any comparison, frankly, to be honest with you. So I, I haven't read that other than I've heard, I've heard the commentary, the comment of, yes, this could be Harry Mulligan's Joker performance or whatever. I've never read any think pieces on it. I Maybe I should, because I would kind of, I guess, love to hear what people think, but I don't see that. I Joker, as a character, is... There is a mental illness that is part of this. There's a depression that is taking place, and, and it is pushing him into a, a place of, like wanting chaos and wanting to harm others there is a very specific so i guess in joker we have the character who is seemingly pushed because of bullying to action and to response is kind of how it goes about starting but this is not about that and i think that's actually one of the key parts of what cassandra does you know, what she's been doing with taking men home that I find to be pretty impactful for this is she's not like hurting them per se. She's not trying to necessarily even ruin their lives. These guys, she's trying to teach them a lesson. And that is very different than the direction that Joker's character goes. She, even in the end, she doesn't go to murder the guy to get revenge. Like that's not the goal that she's trying to achieve. And so I don't see a lot of similarities because I think she has her head on completely straight and is extremely calculated about every decision that she has made. Um, and I think that the Joker plays it a little bit more loose as a character. And I just, I don't see 
really, I don't feel like that. Maybe from a an acting standpoint, like you could say this is a darker kind of character that we really haven't seen Carrie Mulligan play before. And that would be mostly true, although she's played some characters that are definitely, you know, down in the dumps at times. Um, she's in Drive and she's had some other roles where she's really had to deal with some pathos. So it's not like it's her first time ever doing that. It wasn't really Joaquin Phoenix's first time ever doing that either. So I guess my short answer is really I don't see a huge comparison or, or similarity, I guess, in those two performances personally. I would say that you make really great points and I think it's unfair to call her performance Joker-esque because that would imply everything that you mentioned that is not happening with her. She's very calculated. She's very strategic. She does come from trauma and I think that that raises the question, what is what is she reacting to? How does she react to that? And what we're getting, I think, is if you were to make the comparison, an already Joker character. You don't get her fall into that. So I don't think it's fair to say that the origin story or the path to that character is the same. It's not. She is already established. She has history. There is trauma. I will say that, yes, visually speaking, I made that comparison on my second watch. I was like, this kind of feels a little bit Joker-esque. And my reasons are, Aaron, that there's a little bit of crazy attached to it. There's a little bit of imbalance not necessarily mental imbalance. I mean, I really do think she's all there. She's very much aware of what she's doing. It's not like she goes into a dark hole and then comes out and says, wait, what just happened? But there is a sense of taking your actions to the extreme, doing things that get you out of, I'm not just a person who lives with my parents or who works at a coffee shop. I'm actually making this large plan this long con if you will to reach a goal that is in some ways or in uh, you know in a particular world is not accepted by society like i would not want to be around her knowing who she is i'm the guy not the perv side of it but i'm the guy with the hat that she goes from being drunk to completely sober saying you were crazy I wouldn't want to be around you essentially like that. She scares me in that regard. And I think that's why my comparison to hers, her performance to that of the Joker is, is the way it is on that level. She's very scary. And the fact that she can manipulate and control and do things. And I don't want to cross paths with her. I don't want to upset her. I'm walking on eggshells. That's probably the perspective that I'm coming from. So I think that, I wouldn't say it's fair or unfair to make that comparison, but I think it's one of those that is in the similar vein of a person coming from trauma who is reacting to the world around them and doesn't have a lot of options. Like, And that's what not, not what this movie is. This movie is not about her redemption or about how she becomes a better person as a result. It teases that, but ultimately that's not the story that is being told. And I think that that's what makes this movie so unique is that it doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like it has your typical beats. It hints at those and then it sort of upends them from one scene to the next. And that's something I wanted to talk about is about the tone. Something that we mentioned on our FF Plus episode was the 
way the tone kind of shifts. Is it a rom-com? Is it a drama? Is it a thriller? And the answer to that, I think, is yes. <laughs> it's all those things. And it makes the experience for me more refreshing because I feel like I'm on my toes. I feel like I, after the first couple of scenes, I realized that what I expected is not going to happen. And so for the rest of the movie, I'm like, okay, what's going to happen now? Are they going to, it's not about, are they going to get together or not, but is he going to find out about something? Or is she going to find out about something? And what I wanted to know from you is how does that shifting, that abruptness affect your experience and your enjoyment of the movie? Well, I love being able to watch movies twice before we podcast on them. I just want to throw that out there. We've talked about it offline between us. I don't know if we've talked about it online on the show, but there is something that's nice about being able to drop an episode on opening weekend and kind of catch that fire each week when we're in a normal movie flow, right? And things are coming out each weekend and we're, we're dropping blockbuster episodes every Sunday or whatever. There's something great about that. There's a bit, there's a benefit to it. But when I get to watch a movie twice and in almost all cases, it makes our conversations, I think, better because our conversations are about deeper stuff and about really digging into a movie. And this is a great example of that because when I watch it the first time, my lack of a star, because I'll admit I gave it four stars and it was right up there. It's like number seven of my of the year for me but there was something about it that bothered me and there were a couple things one was a little bit of issues with the ending we'll talk about that later and the other was the tonal whiplash is how i would call it because we feel like we go in it's almost like a roller coaster at times you're just going all over different emotional places and just coming to it without any expectations and watching it that can be jarring and yet when i come back to it Knowing what I'm in for, knowing where we're going, they didn't bother me at all. Not even a little bit. In fact, I think that they enhanced it. And I'll tell you, the reason that I feel that way is because I think that as a character, we like you, you, you hit it on the head when you said, we walk through this entire movie as Cassandra in her shoes. We're not watching other characters do things because they don't matter. This is about Cassandra's experience through this film. And because of that, we are going through Cassandra's emotions and Cassandra's experience is not going to be one tonal straight line. That's not how life works either. And so why would we expect a movie that follows a just her to do that same thing? You know, I think that it's a lot of fun and the movie has one of the, the, most bombastic kind of grab you and your attention and just not let go openings of anything. And there's a reason for that. Once it's got you, it wants to be able to show you some other things that maybe you're now a little bit more primed to take. I'll use it as an example. One of the tonal shifts is going from those opening scenes to her at the dinner table with her parents. And we, that's when we start to learn things about her the first time. And then when we go back to her parents, the second time, right back before she's going to end up going into kind of the bombastic ending, there's more like real, there's just really slow drama stuff that matters. 
her dad says to her after her date with Ryan, he says, honey, Nina was like a daughter to us. You know that we miss her, but my God, we have really missed you too. And there's this underlying drama between her and her parents where we realize this is a 30 year old woman living at home. Like, and we really get the depths of her depression. She's working at a coffee shop. She's not been able to move on and get past this. She's consumed with this trauma that had happened to her and, and her friend. And in a sense has committed her life to this goal. And it's almost like it's the only thing she can find any joy in is exposing these people and nothing else in her life brings her that. And so I think that if we maintained that pop, pop, bubblegum pop, uh, music and like colorful experience all the way throughout, it would fall really flat for me because it wouldn't show me Cassandra that actually is a human being who's hurting. It would just show me her having fun and kind of getting back at people and, and kind of enjoying the, the poking aspect of this film instead of making us take a look at the harder truths of the trauma that she's experiencing on a very realistic setting. And so I don't mind it at all. I actually think that, yes, it does enhance the film. And I, I think it's really perfectly paced and perfectly tonally balanced, honestly, for for my taste going back to it the second time. Yeah, I co-sign all of that. And watching it twice, the tonal shifts don't bother me at all for those reasons that you mentioned. But watching it again also allows me to walk in the shoes of other characters that we meet, the lawyer or Ryan or her parents, which the first time I was like, why are these people even here? There's no point. They feel like just sort of thrown in. And I granted, I felt like that a little bit less. I still felt it, but there was more of an impact. There's the porch conversation that means more because you understand her. It's as if you get to hear her story and then you get to experience her story or strike that, reverse it. So you're experiencing her story and then you kind of know what the narrative is and then you kind of get to understand the whys. Why is she so reluctant to commit to something? Why is she living with her parents? Why is she at a coffee shop? All those reasons that you answered just now, we know that and it gives a lot more roundness to her character that would otherwise just be a psychotic thriller with a few kind of crazy laughs in between. And it does make for a more in-depth type of story. It's not a, reven a revenge thriller. Like the first time I saw this, I was like, well, that was a great revenge thriller. And no, it's not like that. It's a heartbreaking drama. If I had to give it a type of genre, I think drama with pockets of rom-com, pockets of thriller thrown in are what you could probably call it. Now, that's all subjective, but I think that for me, that's what Fennell was trying to get at, is that it's her story told in a way that's a bit shocking because the fact is, Aaron, as you mentioned earlier in your one-word takeaway, we see things so tertiarily. Like it's like a we know about the Weinsteins, but that's all we know, you know, and we see Bombshell 
and we're like, oh yeah, the Murdochs, yeah, they're way out there. We we don't need to worry about that because that's not us, you know. But then we see this opening scene that is familiar if you go to a bar in LA or a big city where you see guys hanging out and there's this girl who is absolutely just drunk, you know, almost blackout drunk and it plays out like we expect it to, but then it doesn't. And that's what I think gets us right into her story is you watch it the first time and and you start thinking, man, that's manipulative. That's like entrapment right there. But then you start realizing, no, there's something there that's motivating her. It's less about revenge and more about retribution. Because for her, what we find out is that it's about her relationship with her friend back in med school. That all of this was equally as traumatic for her as it was for her friend. And it's almost as if you could take this into maybe like a psychological horror movie aspect (laughs) and her friend could be like inside of her, you know, speaking and doing these things. Obviously that didn't happen and I'm glad, but it's those quiet moments specifically with Ryan, the, what I would call the rom-com moments that soften her for me where I feel like I can have more empathy for what she's doing. And I'll go back to that scene where she's sort of caught outside the bar and you see her genuinely upset about the fact that she has hurt somebody. Like this is the first time that she's hurt somebody that she hasn't meant to hurt. The hurt that she gave him was to someone that she legitimately cared about. And so I think when you have those multiple viewings and you add to that this differentiating tone throughout, it's less for shock value and I think more to replicate what a person's life is like. I mean, my life isn't always a comedy. It's not always drama. Some, you know, one day it could be a comedy, one day it could be a drama. I don't think it's really ever a psychological thriller. Unfortunately, that's not as exciting for a lot of people. For me, I'm comedy drama. That's about it. And so watching her go through this, it felt like everything made sense. It felt like, okay, yeah, she's not shifting her mindset. Her mindset is the same throughout. She's just shifting the actions. And it's when we get those actions that sort of conflict like that outside the bar where her worlds collide. Man, that's a great moment of vulnerability. And I think it's those types of moments that make us realize we're looking at a human being. We're not looking at a character necessarily. We're looking at someone who is dealing with something that's really heavy. And this is how she knows how to do it. And her relationship with Ryan, I think, throws that off, right? And it's one of the central vehicles to the film. Her relationship with Ryan, I think, is probably my favorite part of this. And... It got me asking a question. Does finding out about Ryan's past as you're watching this change how you see him in the present? And does it negate what we experience with them and their relationship specifically? It doesn't for me totally. I think that his casting is perfect. I think that all the casting is very important to the film, specifically for the men um, and the dude's side. I mean, I remember watching it for the first time and having Adam Brody pop up 
and being a huge fan of the OC and his character Seth and going, oh, <laughs> what the heck? Like, why is my guy like pushing himself on this woman? This is not what he would do. And that's part of what the power of the movie is. And, and I was talking about in my one more takeaway was making us realize that it's not just a guy that looks, quote unquote, the part. It can be any guy. It could be me. It could be you, essentially. Right. And the guy from Superbad, you know, being one of the just just he's like really creepy and kind of gross in this and trying to get her to do cocaine and stuff. And like, you know, you just you expect him to be like a dork. But here he is trying to have this power over her. Right. And and I love how that all plays out because the guys do different they have different levels of attempts at taking her home, but they all kind of generally want the same thing. And one of the most important things to me, and I know I'm, I'll get to Ryan, but one of the most important things to me is that we never see her when you, you mentioned the word entrapment. We never see her do that. What we see is, yes, she's faking it, but it's more of a test. What I would call entrapment is if she led them on in some way to believe they, and, and I'm not, I hope no one is like going to hear my words when I say that and like blow it out of proportion somehow. If she was participating in some sort of sexual activity or making out, and the example I'll give is with Jerry, with Anna Brody's character, the very first one, he brings her home and he goes to kiss her. She doesn't kiss him back. Her mouth is completely closed and completely the whole time that this this entire event is happening. She is telling him both with her words and with her actions at the same time. No, this is not something I want. And he continues. He molests her face and then he puts her in the bed and she's laying down and he just starts taking her panties off and kissing her legs. Like she's, He doesn't ask. He's not. There's no. At, there's nothing in her words, nothing in her body language that says it's okay. If she gave him, if she made out with him at the doorway to get him into the mood somehow and then got him to the bedroom and then was like, oh no, I'm not saying I would say that she's a victim, but I would say then we need to kind of maybe have more of a conversation about the way that she's taking this action. But since she doesn't do that, I feel like it's actually, there's no entrapment here at all. Uh, she is letting these guys be themselves. Right. And to me, if I was the guy who said I wanted to take her home and I wanted to kiss her and she was not interested and I was like, well, I guess that's not happening. You know, time to put you to bed. I'm going back to my house. Then that would be the end of it. Like, she's not going to try and coerce the guy into doing this thing. She doesn't want guys to do this. She wants to find guys that don't. Like, that's the goal. The goal is hopeful that no one is going to be like this. But that's not the case. And so she lets them convict themselves and then teaches them the lesson. And so I don't have a problem with that at all. So so let me let me just kind of bring this up as devil's advocate. First of all, I agree with you. And you're exactly right. I, as I was watching this, with both of the scenes – with Brody's character and bad book writer, I guess we could call him. Neither of them were coerced into doing what they ended up trying to do. In fact, as you said, 
she would say, just take me home. I'm, I'm, I've got to be at work in the morning, especially with that second guy. And it was forced, forced, forced. It could be seen in a way that what she's doing, like I would not agree with her method. I get what she's doing and I get that in, in her world, if we can accept her world as it is, she is playing judge and jury. You're right. She is testing them. And so if we can agree to that premise, then I think in this world, there is a morality that she is working from that makes sense, excluding how we feel as spectators and going, look, if she wasn't at the bar to begin with acting drunk, then she wouldn't have gotten taken home and these men wouldn't have done what they did. That's not what is being shown here. That's not the biased story. This is not an unbiased story. This is a very biased story, and it's fine. That's what fiction should do. It should tell you a story from a perspective that you may agree or may disagree with. I'm popping in episodes of The West Wing in my free time just to kind of make myself happy because I love that world. And I'm fully aware that Aaron Sorkin is coming from a particular political slant. Even if he won't admit it, it comes out on the page because that's what he knows. And in all of his shows, there is a Pollyanna-esque mentality that exists. And I love that. Even if I disagree with some of the ways in which he does it or disagree with some of the ideas in these shows. And when you watch Promising Young Woman, you have to be able to uh, not necessarily agree with the premise, but recognize and accept it. So from there, what we see is a woman who is allowing these men to, quote, be themselves and not get away with it. Teach them a lesson. I did question from a personal standpoint, what does it look like when a guy is a gentleman, when he takes her home without any kind of hiccups? We don't see that necessarily. There's a hint of it with Ryan, but we don't see those moments. And again, I don't think we're meant to. And I don't think the point of the movie is to show both sides. It's a very slanted one side of you to really kind of amplify what this is like. But I in no way think that that Fenella is saying, yep, all men are like this. You got to be careful because they're all predators. I think the fact that we got different men that didn't look the same, that come from different worlds, we didn't really know what their background is, but we could see by the way they dress, by some of the dialogue that both of these guys that we see her interact with are different people. And I think that's a credit to the casting that Fennell isn't just saying, oh yeah, it's the high and mighty. It's the great dressers. It's the folks that are the investors and the bankers that can, that do this. Nope. It's guys who, if they have an opportunity to get you drunk where they don't notice how ugly you are or how terrible your book is, it doesn't matter. As long as you can give them Coke and get them passing out. Great. And so, Point well taken. And I think it's a very blunt perspective. And I think it's really effective. So the first time I watch this, I'm like, man, that doesn't, that's not fair. No, it's not fair in my world, but it's definitely fair in the world that we're seeing here because we have to experience that. And that's what I think is great about film and fiction in general is the fact that there's no apologies for this perspective. We're not out this again. This isn't a documentary. It's not a biopic. We're not trying to nitpick and say, did that really happen? 
it did somewhere. <laughs> and this person could be a composite of the 50 guys that went after this person, but it still happened. Well, and, and yeah, and this is a movie and we have to get to the point and we have to show different possibilities, different realities of the way that guys can approach this in a very short period of time in order to make this as effective as she wants it to be and to make it somewhat more entertaining is to hit a different ta- different couple of like lanes, right? And I think we see that with Jerry right up front, who is seemingly on the nicer side, right? Like he, you don't really feel like he's that pushy, honestly, until the end. And then we move into Christopher Charles, uh, Miss Plass, who's Neil. And I, you know, trying to force her to do cocaine instead of alcohol. And then he is aggressive, right? He, and he then adds in another element of this toxic male harassment where he's like telling her how she's so much prettier without makeup. And that's just a system to oppress women, right? Trying to basically make her think that he's this person who's on her side and and he's a feminist somehow. And that's what men will do, right? Like he wants to weasel his way into her good graces. It's all done. It's all an act. It's all in service of getting what he wants, right? And we see him get more aggressive with her. Um, and, and he's more intentionally insidious. And then we see the guys, the construction guys across the street who are catcalling her, which is very common, right? Women's experience this still to this day, all the time, just walking down the street in the middle of the downtown. Women have to deal with people staring at them or catcalling. And it's brilliant because she just stops and she just stares back at them until they become uncomfortable. And what do they respond with? F you. They're like, wait, you're making me uncomfortable. Well, screw you. What are you, how could you dare do this? Like you were just harassing her. And it, it captures these different elements pretty quickly, I think, which is important. And then we even get like the super nice guy seemingly, right? Which is the very last one where before when Ryan's ends up catching her, who he seems like he's just a nice kind of dude. Like he really is pretty friendly seeming. Um, but that's the point is that it's always going to be like that. It's not, you're not going to see the aggressiveness and the, the, the way that they act in the bar. You're going to see it when you're alone and when it's, when they're able to hide those things. And so like when Ryan comes along, it's interesting to me because I actually texted you this earlier today, how it's one of my favorite lines in the movie. And I, it's one of my favorite lines because it's funny. He comes back to her after meeting her for coffee the first time. And she ends up giving him his, her number and he's like, oh, I crafted this whole long text and I sent it to some oil rig worker and, you know, it's not going to work out or whatever. And it's really cute because it's Bo Burnham doing like this kind of fun little comedy shtick and it's hilarious and sweet. And he says this thing to her, Patrick. She says, I'm not looking to date at the moment. And his response is, would you be interested in a friendship? And I'm secretly pining for you the whole time. And it's played very lighthearted. It's played for jokes. And I laughed. And then I found myself as the movie went on, like thinking about that line. And I was like, you know, that's not an okay thing. Like this is part of the problem that we have is that when she says, I'm not looking to date, the man's 
reaction is to circumvent her stated desire to find a way to get her to do the thing he wants her to do. And he does it by using the thing that he is good at and the thing that takes her guard down in, in making a joke, right? Oh, well, how about a friendship? And, you know, I clearly want you. I clearly am going to be desiring you. And it's it's not, I'm, I'm not saying like, oh, he's a terrible human being for this, but I'm saying like, I think that that line has so much importance because it's a way that things start. It's a way that it's a, it's a way of thinking, right? It's a way of thinking about how you just told me no. That's what she did, Patrick. She said no. If we translate this and he says, yeah, but, <laughs> but maybe not. No, <laughs> you know, maybe kind of yes. Right. And this is to me how we get from a guy doing this to a woman in bed saying, I don't really want to do that right now. And him saying, oh, but maybe you just want to do this one little part of this thing. And now you're sexually abusing a woman. And it's dangerous. And so, you know, that's how the relationship starts off. Um, and it bugged me. Not, not in a narrative sense, but it like it, it stuck with me. It's something that I really want to think about in, in how we just subconsciously quickly refer, re, refer back when we're talking to someone about this. Um, now, as for their relationship as it goes through, I think that it is it does become real for Cassie at one point, you know, that we get the adorable dinner with her family, which is really sweet. And then I think it's after that, or maybe it's leading up to that dinner, but we get, yeah, it's before that we get, they make up after he catches her and she, they, he starts singing the Paris Hilton song and dancing in the pharmacy. And it launches us into their, their whole, they're actually falling in love now montage, which is, I thought was great. And that's, you know, we get to the, the dinner, the dinner with the mom and dad, and now it's serious. Um, and so I think that she wants it to be, I think that she's naive in a way, she's not naive in a lot of ways, but she is naive in a, in a sense to think that it ever could be because she's harboring these secrets. And I'll tell you, I just do not fully believe ever that any relationship is going to be successful when the people going into it are harboring secrets when when you're when you're building your relationship on lies i don't care how dark and deep they are they don't have to be cassandra level lies but if you're unable to be open and honest with your spouse or the person that you're you're serious with it's going to crumble at some point okay it's good you're gonna have to that there's going to be a reckoning is what i should say and so there's that playing into it i, I think that ryan's character Man, I, I really wish, I think, and this is what the thing is, is when you're watching this movie, you want so badly in that moment when she confronts him about the video, you want so badly for this guy to just say, yeah, I screwed up and I wish I hadn't done that. And damn it, I'm sorry. And he can't. Instead, he ends up insulting her. And he actually says, and then we won't be doctors, you effing failure. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, it's all about protecting ourselves. 
And Ryan is about protecting himself first and foremost when he feels threatened. And that shows you that there's no love there, that that's not this whole thing is not built on true love because love is sacrifice and love is honesty. (laughs) And uh, and so it's scary and it's it's real. (laughs) And I think that's what's terrifying to me about it is it feels very real to me. It doesn't feel fantasy. Like, oh, wow, Ryan would never say that. No, the point is that Ryan would say that. <laughs> Fantasy would be him actually just apologizing and taking whatever comes his way for whatever he did in the past in order to atone for that because he truly loves this woman and wants to make things right and be better for her. But he's not. And so I think it's a brilliantly acted uh, piece by Bo Burnham with so much nuance and subtlety in it and and i think the character is just it's fantastically written well i want to i want to touch on a couple of things that you said first of all that line the secretly pining for you is something i didn't pick up until you started talking about it and it made me think of the fact that when we think about the different tonal shifts that that finella is trying to put us through i think what makes those effective as well is the fact that there's manipulation at every level. If this were a romantic comedy, Aaron, like through and through, we would have taken that as a laugh and like, oh man, I hope they get together. That's going to be great. And then we see what happens. They get together and we kind of get our hearts broken a little bit when it doesn't work out. But that scene that you mentioned is such an eye-opening scene because of exactly what he didn't say. And Within the span of, I think, probably like 60 seconds, he goes from saying, forgive me, I hope that you can forgive me, because it's in the past, to saying, please don't tell anybody about this. That self-preservation. And then he says that line, oh, so you're going to go expose me, and now we both won't be doctors, you effing. Yeah, it's so, it's so honest and so completely messed up because that's ex- I don't say that's exactly what happens but that's what happens when you feel like you've been hurt immediately you turn to I've got to preserve myself I've got to defend myself I've got to find whatever reason is because it's not going to be my fault even though you are culpable to whatever it is and it doesn't have to be an exposing video he even says I wasn't doing anything but being there is not a bad thing. Are you kidding me? And when you see that and you go back to how their relationship started, watching this as a drama, watching this with those kinds of eyes, you're like, that's not okay. But in any other romantic comedy, a lie would be perfectly fine because the end result is that we want these two kids to get together. But that's not something that that's not the story that we're being told. That's not the story that Fennel wants to tell us. She wants to tell us that manipulation can happen at any level. And look, can we joke with the people that we're interested in? Absolutely. And I think that on some level, what he said was innocent. I don't think what he thought he was saying was wrong. Because sure, when we flirt with people, we're going to say things that are going to be like, hey, I'm interested. And we won't take a conversation at a coffee shop as seriously as we would 
at a bar when somebody's when a girl is saying no. And I think that's what she's trying to expose is that no means no, whether it's over a cup of coffee or over a drunken stupor. Don't do it. And I think that's difficult for guys to swallow because in some ways the external expression, the outward expression of these guys that we see is a reflection of maybe how they see themselves. Ultimately, I think all these guys thought they were nice, including Ryan. And the thing is, we get to see Ryan. I mean, he's a pediatric doctor, for goodness sakes. I mean, how softer can you get with that? He works with kids. No way is he going to be a bad guy. And so it's that reinforcement. It really does challenge us as an audience to say, wait, anybody can be this guy. It doesn't have to be the ones that you expect. And I won't go so far as to say that she's saying, watch out. I think for men, if the message is to me as a guy, it's to say, watch what you're saying and listen to what they are saying to you. And I mean, I can apply this to my marriage. I mean, I can completely hear what my wife is saying, but not listen and just say, okay, you're done talking. I'm going to start talking now. That's what happens in these scenes. I don't know that Ryan, because he wasn't going to take no for an answer, was ever going to hear anything but what can I do to get her? What can I do to get her? Innocent, guilty, whatever. And it reminded me of that scene where after they have dinner and then they just have to go get coffee before the movie, which you and I both agree is just stupid. Stupid thing ever. Like they're at dinner, they're still munching on fries, they have full sodas left, and he's like, hey, you want to go get coffee? I'm like, you're at dinner! You're at a diner! They have coffee at the diner! I, I mean, I... Have a dessert. Have dessert. So dumb. Enjoy. I will, real, real quick, before you keep yeah. moving, I wanted to say, I think that that is part of the toxic masculinity structure that is something that has to be, like, generationally addressed, right? We don't teach our kids coming up that the right thing to do and the manly thing to do is to, you just got to keep going until she says yes, because that's how we see it in all these old movies. And that's, that's kind of what this is getting at. And what you're saying is like, we, we have to rewire the brain and we have to reteach generations to not <laughs> take the approach of you just keep going until they say, yes, that's not how relationships work. Mm -hmm. Maybe that works when you're talking about like, you know, being determined in a career and you just keep working until you achieve a thing, but it doesn't work when you're talking about a relationship. Absolutely not. Yeah. And, and that relationship, I think you can make the argument that it's not like they couldn't get together because he chose not to push. Look, if you genuinely want to get to know a person, it's okay to say, look, I like you and I would love to hang out with you. And if you can honestly say no expectations, I guarantee you, because this is what happened with me and my wife, we had zero expectations because of some past experiences that we had not only with each other, but with other relationships. That's what made it better is it opened up that level of honesty. In fact, there were conversations, Aaron, where we weren't dating yet, where we actually talked about what we saw marriage looking like and not... And honestly, not thinking about with each other. We were just like, what do you see yourself looking like in your marriage with your husband or with your wife? And there was zero manipulation. We were genuinely just kind of 
figuring each other out because we enjoyed each other's company. So I will tell you firsthand that is entirely possible. It's entirely possible for Ryan to walk into that coffee shop and to say, hey, do you want to go out with me? And she's like, man, I'm not dating right now. Okay. Would you like to have coffee? Look, I don't know if that's the case, but I'd love to catch up. We were, you know, co-classmates in, in med school. I'd love to catch up with you and leave it at that. And yeah, what if he has an alternative agenda? Maybe he does, but it, but, but don't force that. I mean, look, if I like a girl and I want to hang out with her and if she flat out says, no, I don't want to hang out with you at that point, I'm going to say, okay, that's cool. But if I say, look, it's been a while since I've seen you, I'd love to catch up. Would you like to go get coffee, grab some dinner? And she says, yes, I need to respect that. I need to respect the fact that I have not put myself in there to say, all right, are we going to get sex after this? Cause that's what I'm expecting. And I think that's where that scene after they, go to dinner and apparently get coffee and maybe go to the movie. They're walking back to his apartment or they're walking back and he says, Oh look, it's my apartment. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's going to be that guy. But he does something here that I think is sort of noble. And then the second time I watched this, it's ambiguous where he invites her up and she kind of realizes, oh, great, he's another one of these guys. And he just sort of says, oh, sorry, was that too soon? That's too soon. I, I can take you home. So he at least offers. It's not like he says, no, you can stay at my house. It's okay. You can stay at my apartment. You know, I don't know where yours is. And she leaves, Aaron. And this is what kind of threw me the first time is she just hits that garbage can. And I was trying to figure out what she mad at. Is she mad that he's not like the other guys and that he didn't force her to come upstairs with him? Or is she mad that he is like all those guys and all he wants is to take her upstairs? And I'm inclined to believe the latter because of the fact that his intent from her position was to always get her to his apartment. Oh, look, we just happened to be at my apartment. Do you want to come up for a drink? Sounds a lot like that opening scene that we were used to, except she wasn't blackout drunk at the time and i think her frustration came from the fact that she just she thought she had something and it turned out that it just confirmed what she was already experiencing just on a rom-com level as opposed to a sleazy thriller level i guess what do you interesting i i definitely read it as i'm pissed because this didn't go the way that it was plan to go like every other time it goes and now i have to deal with these real feelings that's that's how i took it i took it as i took it as okay well crap now i have to like actually confront the fact that i enjoyed this guy and oh my god maybe he's actually for real and she has she's been doing this time after time and clearly they're all just the site all do the same thing right they all try to take advantage of her and so it's like for me i felt like it was like okay now here we have a cog in the wheel and she's not in a place emotionally where that's what she's not trying to find the right Mr. Right. So she's not looking for a relationship. So it's not like a rom-com where you're like, yes, this is the, I'm going to skip down the road in the rain. Instead, it's actually the reverse. That's because she doesn't want to have to deal with the, the reality that there might be someone that is challenging to her view of men and in general. And so that's how I took it. And maybe, maybe how we see it is 
part and parcel to how we want to see it. I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, we should get the director on the show. I'm sure that she'd love to come on and <laughs> to talk answer that this question. This. One question. Just one question. Yeah. Also, what's the movie that you like that makes you feel the anyway, whatever. Well, let's talk a little bit about the ending. It is somewhat controversial depending on who you talk to. And I really wanted to know from a feeling film perspective, how did the ending leave you feeling? Okay, so two different experiences with it. The first one was like very okay, I'm shocked. Like this is wow, all this stuff is happening right now. Wasn't expecting her to get killed. Wasn't expecting the post-death gotcha moment. Great use of an emoji to be the last image we see on screen, by the way. A winky face. Wasn't planning all that stuff. And I I was kind of like a little bit thrown off by how hard it went in the end. I don't think I ever had a problem necessarily with it per se, but it was like, okay, wow. It did feel like it wrapped up a little bit nicely, darkly, dark comedy still. Obviously, she's dead. She got murdered. But nicely in the sense that she wins. She got them, right? I don't think I love that as much because her goal was never to get them necessarily. Like, yes, she wanted to make Al pay because he was the one that was primarily responsible more than everybody else, you know, if there is one, obviously. And so that was in there. But one thing I read today put it in a lot of perspective for me. And it was an interview with the director, and she's talking about how the, the very first script that she had, the first version, It ends with Al and Joe burning Cassie's body. And that's how it stops. And she said, you know, it's bleak as hell. And the financiers balked and literally laughed at her and said, come on, we're going to give you money to make this. And she said, but in my heart, I think that's where it would have ended. And frankly, that's where I feel from this narrative, the right ending is. Because the reality is... Everything else about this story has played itself out to be somewhat authentic and not fantastical in nature, necessarily. And if two guys get away with it, I feel like they would get away with it, right? Like, the way the story is set up is that they would be able to get away with it, essentially. And... The fact that they don't get away with it, that she gets them from beyond the grave and then they get arrested and we're supposed to believe that it's all perfectly tied up with a bow and, you know, the evidence is there and now they're going to pay not only for her murder because they found her bones and her her charred body, but they're also going to pay for the past and the rapes and all these other things. It is just so idealistic, um, almost to a fault that doesn't, I don't think necessarily fits tonally. And so... I appreciate that that was where ultimately Emerald really, really wanted to go with it. And I find that there is an irony to the fact that the studio wouldn't allow that. 
And there's an important, there's almost a secondary commentary to be had on the movie's ending about the fact that they wouldn't let her make that ending. Well, why not? It's like, well, we can go a certain, we can go so far with you, but we can't let you go all the way. You know, like she has to win in the end kind of thing. It can't end bad. Like all this stuff that she's seen about bad in the world and the way that men treat women and all this, but it has to be kind of fixed at the very end essentially and so there's just something really interesting about that about not wanting to accept it as realistic as the way that she kind of wanted to play it um but for me i enjoy it i i enjoy it that's not the right word but i i think it works and it plays out with a lot of impact you know and at first i will say when Joe Max Greenfield, again, one of these great castings, who's this perfectly nice guy Schmidt in, you know, the new girl, he comes rolling in there and the way that he reacts to Al being like, she's dead. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever, bud. And he's just chilling in a chair and she's dead. And then when he figures out that she's dead, the things he says immediately going to Al, this is not your fault. It was an accident, right? Of course it was an effing accident. No one's ever going to find out. You did nothing wrong. It's okay. It's this toxic reinforcement, again, of self-preservation. And it felt right on par like with how people would react. Because if you've gone this far already and you know, you've know you covered up raping someone and, and sexually assaulting people for years you're not going to want to throw it all away now. So you're probably going to try to get away with whatever you can get away with. Right. If you have that opportunity and it bugs me and it, it frustrates me, not from watching the movie and the movie being bad, but it, like, as a human being, it's just like, you, you just don't want to believe that these people exist, but history says that they do. And so I think it's an entertaining ending I think there's elements of it fantastically and idealistically. This is what we would want to see. Even in the darkest moment, we would want them to get their comeuppance. But I also think it's important to realize that that's not always going to be the case. And it shouldn't, we don't want us, we don't want people to leave with the idea that they're all going to get their due. And so there's no work to be done, I guess is maybe what I would say. Well, and I think there's something strategic about the fact that we don't actually see what happens to everybody. We make assumptions. Now we can assume that people are getting arrested and Joe takes off. So obviously his loyalty is back to himself. Just like it, I mean, it just reinforces the fact that self-preservation is at the heart of these, these characters. And even to even to Cassie, self-preservation and her self-preservation, I think, lives in this revenge mentality, this this justice that she seems like she needs to get. I will say that and this leads into the last question before we get into our connecting point. My reaction to the ending, I think, is more optim not optimistic in that everybody got what they deserve, but the fact that it raises some questions for me. It raises these questions about really what you take away regarding wrestling with and reconciling your past. Because we look at what I would say as including Cassie, 
four different characters. We see Cassie, we see Ryan, we see uh, the lawyer, and we see, is it Josh? I think it's Josh. Who? Who kills her? Is it Josh? I get the name wrong. Anyway, Al is the one who kills her. Yeah. So we see those four characters who are obviously Cassie's the central figure, but we have these other tertiary characters that she interacts with. And what we see through the course of the murder and everything that happens after that is this question. How do we respond as individuals to that past or how do we reconcile that? And, and there are, there are really two that you could go either way or it could be somewhere in the middle. There's responding defensively. I honestly don't remember doing that. You know, Ryan's scene in the doctor's office, that confrontation that he has with her, he says, that was a long time ago. I don't even remember that. Even the conversation that she has with the girl at lunch, she keeps saying, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. I mean, we were kids. We were in college. These things that are very familiar to us that – we're thinking, wait, no, 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 no. That should not matter. And that's a common theme, Aaron, in this, where you hear people say, that was a long time ago. Even the dean, the counselor, played by the lovely Connie Britton, at one point she says, if that were an issue, I'm sure I would have dealt with it. <laughs> I'm sure I would have dealt with it? Really? What are you going off that assumption? That Because you're a nice person? Or is the other response, should you respond with guilt, like we see the lawyer and the breakdown that he has with her in his home. I can't get over what I did or what happened. And in some ways, Aaron, Cassie is like this. She can't get over it. She can't get past this. She has to be able to, even up to death, make sure that this thing is resolved. And so I didn't feel like there was necessarily resolution. We see police cars, we see people getting arrested, but I didn't necessarily feel like, haha, she got what she wanted because she's dead and she can't experience that. She's writing a text message. I don't know how many days before this to be sent on this particular, at this particular moment, but ultimately is it really satisfying to a person if they can't experience it? And I think that that's part of what makes the ending work for me is the fact that yes, it definitely feels like a bow on the surface and I might be reading too much into this, but when you ask those questions, how are we responding to our past and how do we reconcile who we were, bad or good, versus who we are now? How do I respond to how I was at a twenty as at twenty-five versus how I am at forty? And I think those are important questions that we have to ask. And how we respond to that really does affect the relationships that we have now. If Ryan, for instance, had been able to reconcile that moment where he was watching this rape take place, who knows? how he would have been in this relationship with with her. Maybe he would have come up and said, Cassie, I am so sorry. And, you know, months later, years later, I realized that that was something that completely was wrong. And, you know, making this this grand speech, maybe that would have changed her mind. Maybe she wouldn't have gone up to the cabin and done what she did. Because there were moments, Aaron, where there was some vulnerability with her and him that felt very real. And I think it was real. But he didn't. Instead, he said, I honestly don't remember doing that. And you're not going to show that to anybody. Are you please don't do that? <laughs> and I don't know if it what the right answer is. I don't know if it should be a combination of both or something in the middle. But for me, the ending was one of those things where it got me asking that kind of question. 
And I think that's important too, not only as a man, but as a human being that we have to deal with our past in some way, shape or form, whether it's dealing with the demons that lived there, the person that we were, even though we're not that person anymore, is that affecting who we are now? And that's a good message. I mean, it's a message that I think we all have to own as people in this specific instance, in this particular story. It's how do we own that as as men when it comes to how we look at, at women in terms of our relationships with them. So I, I thought the ending worked. I mean, it definitely worked theatrically, but I think that um, I wouldn't have been dissatisfied if it had ended with the burning because I think, but I think it would have left a different message and that message wasn't necessarily be wrong, but it wouldn't have been the message that I latched onto. All right. We're at the point where we talk about the thing that we connected with the most. And uh, Aaron, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so mine is actually the experience Cassie has with the Dean at college Again, casting matters and choosing to put Connie Britton in this position, especially for us, because we're going back through Friday Night Lights and have been for the last year, was a real gut punch to see the very first time. At least the second time I was prepared. The first time I was like, wait a second, this is not okay. This is not happening. Like, I, this is, it's, I mean, it's just brilliant, right? You're playing on the person's kind of most known role of being a school counselor who, has spent season upon season of television doing nothing but helping kids and going out of her way to do so. And now you put her in a position of someone who has to be this character who dismissed the previous accusations. And so my connecting point is kind of the moment that this all leads up to really, but like, it's really interesting how this plays out. She says she doesn't remember the incident even though it was reported to her, I think Cassandra's way of slowly giving her information and kind of getting her to admit pieces of the truth is great. And you know, she admits it, but then says, you know, I dismiss thee because we get accusations like this all the time, one or two a week. What am I supposed to do when I have all of that? You know, she's like, do I have to she says, none of us want to admit when we've made ourselves vulnerable, when we've made a bad choice, and those choices can be damaging. We've got to give the boys the benefit of the doubt instead of ruining their lives every time there's an accusation. She's protecting them and probably just protecting herself, protecting her organization, the school itself. And this goes back to kind of the heart of the Me Too movement of do we believe women when they claim to have been sexually harassed or do we blow that off? and find whatever reason to victim blame and to say that that didn't happen. And of course this results in Cassie playing her card where she tells the Dean that she has dropped her daughter off with the boys in the same college dorm room that this happened to uh, Nina, I believe is her name and that they have bottles of vodka and suddenly the Dean gets worried and wants to call and wants to go and protect her own daughter. And just completely changes course, right? And really it boils down to my connecting point is this one line from Cassie when this happens. And she says, I guess it feels different when it's someone you love. And to me, that is the crux of a big part of this situation and the Me Too movement is it's 
different when it's someone you love. It's different when it's someone you know or someone you care about. And you can translate this into so many things. COVID, for example. Well, it's this, we're going to have one view of COVID. Let your grandma get it and pass away from it. And then let's see how you respond to that now, right? And you're going to have a different response. You could potentially have two very drastically different feelings on that matter. And that's what this is. The Dean is presenting herself. She's a character that is standing in for so many people who don't want to believe when accusations are made or want to find a way to dismiss them. But let it be your daughter that it happened to. Now, how willing are you to dismiss those things? And that is so disturbing to me just on a life basis, on a society basis, on a morality basis, like the entire world. Like this is something we deal with, but like we are all selfish. Humanity is selfish is what it boils down to. And we think about our own, think about ourselves. And until we're able to think about other people and to care about other people as much as we care about our own and as much as we care about ourselves, then some of these things don't get fixed. And some of these changes can't happen. And so it's a really, really impactful statement that she makes. And I think it's one of those lines that people need to walk away from this movie with. They need to think about, does it feel different when it's someone you love? So whether you're the person that's having to make a decision on whether to believe an accusation, whether you're the guy standing around with other guys when something starts to happen, think if you think about that person Instead of as an object, you think about that person as someone that you care about. If you were to do that, you wouldn't participate. You wouldn't, these things wouldn't be allowed to happen because no one would want to treat the people that they love that way. And so it's crazy, but like it can change everything if we were able to do that. And, and obviously we can't snap our fingers and have that happen, but that should be the goal. And, and so that was really the, singular like just boom gut punch thing that i came away with from this movie it's a great scene and definitely fits with the juxtaposition of what you expect versus what happens and the casting is is just perfect for that and my heart breaks every time i see connie Britton do what she did because you're better than that tammy you're better than that anyway well, my particular scene is the conversation with the lawyer, and I believe his name is Jordan, but she comes in and she essentially, she knocks on the door and he says, hey, I'm not practicing law anymore. And she goes, I'm not here for that. Uh, I'm here for a reckoning. And it, it was kind of a weird scene to start with. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And she asks him to kind of recount what he remembers about the case involving her friend Nina. And there's some real subtlety to the script here. I love the fact that he's honest enough about saying it's still, it's fuzzy to me, but I believe her name was Nina, which I think is a huge, huge deal. I mean, if you're a lawyer, you got a lot of clients. He's not practicing anymore. I think he was put on sabbatical or something like that. But the fact that he remembers the girl's name is pretty important. And the, the big thing that comes from me, Aaron, is the fact that he essentially confesses he said look i knew that this was wrong and i didn't do enough to 
take care of it. Essentially, this is the this is the stuff that should have been coming out of Ryan's mouth when the video was shown to him. If we had put that dialogue or that monologue into the mouth of Ryan, I think I would have been cheering for Ryan and her to get together and to take on the world uh, of justice that way. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And what really connected me to that scene was not really his confession, but the fact that she is like absorbing that and she says, I forgive you. And, you know, he's kneeling down and he's got his head, I think, in her lap. She's got her her hand on his head. And the scene ends. She walks out and we see this guy who had driven with her. And she said, essentially, you're not needed. So we infer, apparently, that she was going to knock this guy off. And there's a great little line at the end. He goes, but I'm still getting paid, right? And she kind of nods. And then the next scene, she's being dropped off. And we have that great conversation. I think it's with Nina's mom on the porch. But what I felt in that scene, Aaron, was the fact that she was able to kind of live for a moment without that weight of revenge, that weight of justice, that weight of I have to make sure that everybody pays that was connected to this. You know, that's part one, part two, part three, part four. And I think it'll, it's this it's this weird irony. It allowed her to be more vulnerable with Ryan that allowed her to fall in love with him. It allowed her to confess to her old friend from the bar that nothing actually happened with this guy that she was paying him to just watch her. And so she was sort of making her own amends based off of these parts that she had written in her journal and the irony of all that Aaron is the fact that her vulnerability ended up causing her more pain specifically with Ryan that she falls in love with this guy who is part of her pain and yet he's the one guy we see that doesn't take advantage of her at all her opening up to her friend about the fact that hey nothing happened sort of prompted her friend to show her this video that ended up just putting her back on the course of destruction of this guy it's it's almost like there's a reprieve like there's this hurricane of chaos and revenge and this moment with the lawyer was the eye of that storm where she could see clearly where she was able to kind of go okay maybe things aren't as bad maybe i can have a life that's not weighted down and filled with all of this just crazy bad stuff unfortunately we didn't get that but i think that's wonderful that we had a moment like that and it came really at the the moment where we needed that like we're kind of living this drama with her and we need to take that break too so i think it's great filmmaking i think it's great screenwriting and i think that when we watch her go through this, it really amplifies her character and makes me more empathetic towards what she is battling and dealing with. And yeah, so that was my connecting point. Good stuff. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Feelin' Film. Next week, we will be bringing you our thoughts on the Christopher Nolan Mindbender Tenet with recent friend of the show, Zoheb Ali. So you'll want to tune in for that one. Before we go, I wanted to make a quick announcement that Tenet will actually be my last episode on Feelin' Film for a little while. 
I'm stepping away to put more attention into other areas of my life that have been lacking. So in my place, beginning with our January donor pick inside out, Kales Davis will be stepping into the co-host chair and hopefully he will help keep Aaron uh, on the feel and film train, as you will, and keep it moving forward. I'll definitely miss the weekly conversation for sure, but this definitely isn't goodbye. So for now, I will wrap us up as always by saying thanks for another great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.